Do you have a question? Yes, I just wondered, uh, growing up in Australia, how did you begin your journey? <laughs> yeah, that's right. People ask, ask me that quite frequently, especially in Thailand. But uh, yeah, I, it's, it's a bit hard because, uh, you know, logically it should have never happened, yes? Um, I was brought, my, but one of the strong conditions for me to see kind of impermanence is my parents died when I was quite young. I don't remember my mother, she died when I was three, and then my father died when I was 14, 15. And, um, and that, that always had this really lasting impression on me that, you know, I started to see impermanence to, a, you know, a very weak degree compared to understandings in the Buddhist teachings. But, you know, uh, when I was at, say, I studied biology and science at university and I, my mind would just say, you know, if I get a degree, I'm waiting for death. And if I get married, I'm going to die. She's going to die. If I have children, I'm going to die from them. They're going to die from me. You know, get a job, I'm going to die from... What's the purpose? But I didn't have an answer. And I, I was... Uh, my mother was a Catholic. Or our family had been a Catholic. But uh, I was not drawn to kind of theistic, theistic religions at all. Actually, quite the opposite. And I was born up in a period, maybe around, I'm 57, so at that time the Vietnam War was very strong and I was brought up in sort of left-wing politics at uni and, and um, I remember taking some of the lay people with me, showing them the places that I nearly got arrested at when sort of, you know, and marching in the streets while the police horses were driving us off the streets. You know, basically I had very strong ideals of you know justice and peace and liberty and wanting freedom and and non-exploitation but you know I wasn't yet a peaceful person but then um, amongst all that um, I came home and uh, I was right at the last bit of my doing my intensive swatting for my last exams the third year at uni and I was fed up with biology books <laughs> and I picked up a book off the shelf, I normally was never interested in religion, but I just picked up a book of one of my friends on Buddhism. And I read that book, <clears throat> and I read about the Four Noble Truths in that, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I read that book all night, and when I put it down, I knew I was a Buddhist. Yeah, it was one of those, you know, I never believed in revelations or homecomings, but I put that book down, and I, I could say, categorically, oh, this is what I've been looking for. And, you know, I, the thing that I found so profound, I say to people, is, you know, the first description and completion of the first noble truth that the Buddha analysed suffering was not just, you know, old age, sickness and death, which I was seeing, and that beings were looking for security, but almost into everything. You know, it went down to even, you know, anything like happiness, even that, because that changes, it's insecure. And seeing the profundity of that description really hit me. But the, the next noble truth of... The cause of suffering is attachment. I'd never seen that. And that was just like bombshell going off because I started to see myself, yes, reflecting on my life, the things that were causing me you know, problems was when I really wanted something one way or didn't want it the other way. And so that was very profound. Of course, the promise of a utopia and a liberation from that was very tempting, but you know, I didn't know that at that point in time and a lot of religions offer utopias. But at least it's presented a possibility way out. But the thing that got me as a biologist was the Noble Eightfold Path. 
because what the Buddha is saying is, this is a repeatable experiment. I did this by these eight steps, experienced this state of Nibbāna, freedom. Other enlightened monks have got enlightened through this path. That process is in these steps. If you do these steps, you will prove the theory yourself. And as a, as a scientist, that was really challenging. That was okay. And the thing is, none of those steps took believing in. That's what I like, because I wasn't interested in someone saying, you have to believe in me and you'll find out next lifetime. Uh, you know, what I was interested in is this, you know, step leads to that step, that step. You can apply it in this lifetime. So yeah, I was really hooked. The next day, I didn't go to uni. I went straight to the Theosophical Society. And it was the only bookshop that had anything alternative. And I found another book on Buddhism called, you probably heard it, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And in those days, this was 1976, um, there was nothing really available in Theravada uh, very much. And it was all Zen. And so I, after reading that book, I, there was a picture of Suzuki Roshi on the back and uh, just his face. And I just looked at that and I wanted to become a Buddhist monk. Uh, though I'd never ever, I, I've never met a Buddhist monk, didn't know how they lived or what they did. Uh, just, there was just a strong feeling there. So I went along to the Adelaide Buddhist Society and there were six of us in those days. I mean, you know, this is a great gathering compared to those days, you know. I was a sixth member of the Adelaide Buddhist Society and uh, I remember seeing they had the five precepts written on the wall, you know, not to kill, not to steal, not to adultery, uh, sexual misconduct, uh, to lie and to take drugs and intoxicants. And, Basically, you know, I was brought up with very good people. My parents were very moral and ethical people. And, I, you know, so I, I lived by that already. But, you know, when I read them, I, that day I remember asking myself, if, if I was to meet any human being in the world and they said they lived by these five principles, would I say that that was a good person? And I said, yes. And I said, do you want to become a good person? And I said, yes. And then I said, then from now on you have to live by these five principles. You know, they were, they'd been articulated in my life by my family and that generally, but you know, that was a distinct, I remember, making that determination. So from then on, I kept the five precepts. And uh, eventually I met uh, a Western monk called Achan Kandi Palo, who you may have heard of, yes. Yeah, you know Achan Kandi Palo? And uh, he... Uh, I met another lady, Elsa Letterman. She was actually my first meditation teacher, Elsa Letterman. She became uh, y, um, Ayakema, yes, Ayakema. And she, uh, at that time, she was Elsa Letterman. She started, I did the first meditation retreat with her. And I tell people I was a five cushion man, you know, we're going to one under, you know, because it's nah, one under, two under the backside, one under each knee, and one just in case, you know. <laughs> but. Uh, one of the things that really struck me on that retreat was just one time I had incredible pains in the knees having played sport and, and then she, um, she got me just to look at that and sort of dissolve it with my mind and it just, like from this incredible pain, it just disappeared. And to me as a sort of biologist that really struck me because I saw this was, this was the mind, this had nothing to do with body and that really caught me or the power of the mind to make pain absolute disappear and turn it to bliss. Now that was something that really 
caught me and that really in, improved my meditation a lot. And from there I did a 10-day meditation with Vajan Kendi Palo, who was, that was very inspiring. And, uh, you know, I so obviously had moved from, from uh, Zen Buddhism, which was very hard to get a teacher and training, to Theravada Buddhism because I found Theravada Buddhism much more logical, rational, and from, from a scientific background I could follow it much easier than the sound of two hands, one hand clapping or sound of moo or something like that. Um, but uh, so, yes, yeah, so I just took Theravada teachings very clearly and Achan Kandipala was a brilliant teacher in those days, very, very wonderful. And uh, from there I learned about the Thai forest meditation teachers. Uh, and that was, uh, he helped me on that, uh, to introduce me to people like Tanajan Teet, Tanajan Man's biography had just started to come out there, and then Ajahn Teet, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabur, he started reading from a book called Living Buddhist Masters by Jack Cornfield, just come out and uh, heard some of those teachings, and then met some, some monks from Ajahn Chah's tradition. And then I decided to become a monk and then went over to Wat Buddha Dhamma. That was the year it started. It started in 76 or something like that. Yeah, 70, 70, 78, sorry, 78 I, in March and I went over in April. And there were six of us there. And the interesting thing was that of all the six people who were there when I spent that first year and the first winter there, five of them became monastics and three of them are still monastics. Yeah. So that was, that was interesting, that sort of, you know, kind of past connection, early connection is uh, myself um, and then later on Debbie, she became Chi Kwang, who's now in Korean nun, in, she's living back in Melbourne in Australia. And then uh, Tan Banyawado, who, uh, Banyo, what is a Wado? He's in uh, the Buddha Net. Yeah, Bodhi Tree. Uh, up in Lismore, that area, Lismore. So he was there as Eddie, and uh, and then there was two others who ordained as monks, and then eventually uh, left and came back to Australia. So uh, I went off to Thailand, and Chalkun Mahasamai from Sydney helped me to get a you know got of a, a visa, and went over to uh, Thailand, and eventually en ended up with Ajahn Chah. I hadn't planned on that, but um, uh, I eventually went and stayed with Ajahn Chah. I had malaria at the time, and I thought if I go and stay with the Western monks, I'd get over malaria, but I, I never left there. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, just uh, progress from there. But many people ask me, you know, when did you decide or how did you decide to become a monk? And I tell them, well, actually, it wasn't a decision. Um, I didn't have to think, should I or shouldn't I? To me, there was no alternative. It's like if you know that you know there's suffering and you know that there's a cause and you know there's a path out, then you've either got to do it this life or next life, so I may as well just do it now, yes? <laughs> Don't put it off. And so it wasn't a question of should I, shouldn't I, it was just there's nothing else to do, there's no options. Yeah. All other options were really postponements. And uh, so I figured it, once the alarm goes off, get up. You know, <laughs> you may as well not turn over and put the snooze button on, just get up. <laughs> so that's, uh, it's very hard for, you know, my, my friends were kind of, uh, they were in, they're still in shock, <laughs> I think. <laughs> 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 uh.